Hi, everyone. Drew Prody here, host of the Broken Brain Podcast. On today's episode, we have my dear friend, stand-up comedian, former high school teacher, and recovering lawyer, Mia Lux. And we're going to be diving deep into the topic of depression. On this podcast, Mia openly shares her own personal struggle with depression and the importance of understanding the emotional, psychological, and physical causes of depression. If anybody's ever gone through a mental health crisis, I think you're going to really relate to the stories, anecdotes, and the patient journey that Mia has been on. We also discuss some of the best ways to support someone who is depressed, what to say, what not to say, and how to support them in their process of healing. Additionally, we jump into the topic of perfectionism and how to get out of your own way and how to break through people pleasing. Me and I also talk about the healing power of laughter and comedy and her exciting new project, which I mentioned earlier called The Conscious Is Show, an online comedy self-development show that delivers humor and educates at the same time. It's a fascinating interview. I think you're really gonna dig it. Now, before we jump in today's show, I just wanna say thank you so much for tuning into this podcast and thank you everyone and anyone who shared one of our episodes with a friend or a loved one. It truly means the world. Okay, are you ready? Now on to my formal intro for Mia Lux. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast, where we dive deep into the topics of neuroplasticity, epigenetics, mindfulness, functional medicine, mindset, and more. I'm your host, Drew Perot, and each week my team and I bring on a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live more. This week's guest is former lawyer-turned-comedian and host of the online digital talk show, The Conscious-ish Show, Mia Lux. Mia Lux merges the playful and the profound, drawing on her experience as a stand-up comedian, personal growth junkie, former high school teacher, and recovering lawyer. She originally got into stand-up comedy as a way to learn how to fail. We're going to talk about that in this podcast. A sincere effort to overcome the perfectionist practices that kept her in perpetual burnout as a lawyer and high school teacher. In the process... She wound up working in the personal development space, originally as the director of content for the global transformation company, Mindvalley, and eventually stepping into her role over the past five years as a host and facilitator, including for the Feel Good Summit that myself and my business partner, Dr. Mark Hyman, hosted. She specialized in top wellness personal development events around the world. Her newest project, which I had the pleasure of experiencing last night, The Conscious Ish Show, is the baby of both worlds, a late night style talk show that takes on topics that really count and matter, health, self-love, depression, sex, spirituality, and more. It's Mia's mission to make the world's most powerful ideas more accessible by making them truly enjoyable. If you're laughing, you're learning. Mia Lux, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me as a guest last night for your show. It's my pleasure. What? A journey you took us on. If I had to describe it, I would say if Hassan Minaj and Trevor Noah met like Eckhart Tolle and like <laughs> Beyonce and you mix it all together, that's what the consciousness show is. I'm going to keep that compliment in my little stash and remember. That's a really, thank you. That's very When eventually kind. your book comes out, that'll be my quote at the, Excellent. At, the, at the bottom. 
you know, we're going to talk more about the Consciousness Show and some of the guests you've had on there and why you created it. But I want to first dive into the topic of last night's show, which now is available to people. They can find it online and we'll link to it in the show notes, which was depression. Why did you decide to do a show all on the topic of depression? Yeah, and choosing to do a comedy show on depression is, um, is a tough one because, you know, cracking jokes about suicide and depression ca can be uh, tough to do in good taste. But for me, I've been sort of very personally affected by depression. I've had multiple depressive episodes in my life, been suicidal. I've lost some really close friends to suicide. And, you know, my experience has been overwhelmingly that there, re there really isn't a place to talk about it. And we're starting to get there now, but but it's still such a heavy topic and such a painful topic that it was important to me to to turn one of my shows sort of into that direction, try find kind of a way of, of opening that conversation, but with a little bit of levity uh, so that it's a soft entry into, into what is sometimes a very dark space. It's so tough to talk about that often in a way what you were highlighting last night is that people don't end up talking about it. So many people, when you ask the audience, how many people here have either suffered from depression or know somebody who has been significantly impacted by uh, depression personally, I mean, everybody's hands went up. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is that, you know, I, I consider myself a very open person. I talk about everything. But when I was writing that show, I realized that I hadn't really spoken about uh, the times when I had been genuinely suicidal. I felt shame around that. Uh, I had shared that I was depressed, but in a kind of like passed over way, not a big deal. I had depression, I beat it, we're great. Uh, Lags to riches story. Right, you know, like just, oh, we duck it away. And that's the, the pressure on us to kind of sort of compartmentalize it and be okay about it, not really open up about, about the darkness and the repetition, the shame of depression coming back, you know, uh, having worked hard and beaten it, those sort of things. So I realized that even though I'm a very open person, I talk about everything, there was such, there is such a stigma around it that I had been kind of sort of secretly sort of repressing those stories too, uh, which was, you know, really, really important, but also quite a painful lesson to go on while I was writing that show. You mentioned something earlier, which is that, you know, you are an open book, but even writing this show was a little bit tough for you to put together. Could you share a little bit about how did you find yourself in that situation? Because I think your story is so relatable. How did you find yourself in that situation of being depressed and ultimately being suicidal. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had multiple uh, sort of major depressive episodes. And one of the things that, which I wanted to make clear in that show last night is that I do think that it can be emotional, psychological, and also physical. And I think I've experienced both. You know, my first round of depression was an emotional, psychological experience where I just had, I had really bad thinking. And that's what kind of spiraled me down. And like there's great therapy, you know, like cognitive behavioral therapy, different mechanisms. Uh, really good belief work to help that that's what helped me but when I got really really uh depressed the, the hardest one was was a physical cause and I used to be a pistol instructor and I taught in an indoor range and and what happens when when you're teaching is you stand right next to somebody and when they fire the gun all the lead aerosolizes and so for a year you know a few times a week I was breathing in all this lead and I got severe severe lead poisoning and didn't know and uh it, you know, it takes a, a moment for the lid to kind of really do its damage. And so a couple of years later, I had this insane depression. Like I just, something just hit me and I went down and I did, I did all the therapy. I, I had, I used all the tools I'd used when I was younger, all the kind of emotional, psychological, social tools. 
And month after month, I was getting worse and worse and, you know, suicidal. And it just it got to a point where I was luckily I had kind of the, the presence of mind after a few months when I was like, how far is my balcony from the ground? You know, having thoughts, super dark thoughts um, that I was like, something doesn't feel right. If I've, if I've been using all these tools that I know work, but nothing's shifted in me. It's like maybe it's, it's not something I can just fix uh, at the conscious or even subconscious mental level. And, and very fortunately had someone in my family who's a functional medicine practitioner. And I hadn't even told anybody I was depressed. I'd been just dealing with this for months. And I just sent them an SOS text like, I am literally at the edge and I don't know what to do. Can I come to your clinic and can you just see if there's something going on that could help me? Wow. So lucky I have someone like that in my life. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've had many uh, practitioners in the past who've come on here, functional medicine doctors, who do talk about the physical implications of depression, heavy metals, uh, severe deficiencies in omega-3 fatty acids. And uh, your uh, husband, Dr. Mark Hyman, is my business partner. Best husband. <laughs> and you interviewed him as part of your show, too. We're going to chat about that. Uh, at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, there was a group of military veterans who ended up there, who were deployed overseas, who were individuals who were stationed uh, in different parts, and some people that were dealing with artillery and tanks and other things like that. And they came back from uh, being deployed abroad, and they literally were losing their minds. Some were going depressed, some felt like they were going crazy, and no doctor believed them. They would scan them and say, look, it's all just psychological. Finally, they ended up at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, met a doctor over there. They did the same thing that you had done as a heavy metal test, found out that this, these guys' depression and severe anxiety was coming from lead poisoning from or, and heavy metal poisoning from artillery. Yes. And that's, and that's a huge revelation because when you, when you feel like you've been going crazy, which is exactly how I felt, like I, I couldn't complete a thought in my head. So I'd walk around with a headphone in San Francisco, so you can walk around like, and just talk to yourself out loud uh, because I, I didn't want people to think I was crazy, but I couldn't think properly. You know, I couldn't, I had no memory anymore. I had serious, you know, like my body would stop working. I get momentary paralysis, like very serious effects as well as the mood stuff. And you do feel crazy. So to have someone validate it and be like, oh, <laughs> by the way, there's a massive assault on your body, which is creating this disconnection. Uh, that in itself is is a is a really big step towards feeling like there's a possibility I could heal. And when you're in a depression, one of the ch most challenging things is that you you don't feel like there's a possibility you're going to heal. It feels like this is how it is now forever, and that is one of the most damaging thoughts and fears that you get trapped into. So the hope that is offered through functional medicine, the hope that like, well, there might be a physical cause, there might be a way out, there might be a way we can help break the cycle. Is I think enormous. You know what I loved about your show last night uh, was it's like woke 3.0, and here's what <laughs> I mean by that. They're specifically on the topic of uh, depression because I haven't seen the other shows that you've done. The the sort of modern lexicon is like, look, let's talk about it, but let's just talk that people need to go seek help. But that's just a general statement. It's not really a guided statement of like, okay, but like what kind of help besides just seeking help? You're also talking about the fact that, well, first of all, at least in America, a lot of people can't afford or don't have healthcare, 
right? So that's like layer one. The second layer is like, what are actual practical things that we know, whether it be through functional medicine interventions, whether it be through um, the woman that you interviewed last night, uh, uh, I'm blanking on her name again. Marissa Pierce. Marissa Pierce and her methodology that she used, you're bringing in the latest practices and you're not afraid to just like go there. Like, hey, actually these things are not voodoo. They're not pseudoscience. These are actual ways that we can jump into it and address this topic. So I felt like you brought those together in a really beautiful way because sometimes it seems like the only thing we can do is just raise awareness on it. But there's a lot more. I agree. You know, I think I think awareness is great. Awareness helps to destigmatize and, and have the conversation. But, you know, for instance, if you've ever called a suicide prevention hotline, I mean, sometimes it's helpful, but like what people are really needing is so much beyond the kind of ambulance, at the bottom of the cliff that we're offering, because so much of what's caused by depression, you know, has to be kind of dealt with, integrated in a lifestyle way, whether it's emotional, psychological, social or physical. And those are real practical things with predictable results, like as as kind of as as. You know, there's not one cause for depression. There's, I think there are nuances for sure, but there are certain predictable behaviors, thoughts, you know, physical insults that lead to depression. And there's also predictable ways to assist with those that can lead people out of depression. I think that's very important to focus on because, you know, it's it's having someone just be like, okay, well, it's cool. You're going to get through this. You know, you know, just you've got something to live for. That's great. But what when you're depressed, you kind of need someone to like take you by the hand and be like, do these things and then to help make you do it, to help break the cycle. So I think shifting our awareness is great. I really want awareness must go up. Awareness is and, first step one. And as part of the awareness, an awareness of possible pathways forward for people who are in depression. And one of the things you had, because we just don't talk about it, so we don't talk about what best to do, is you had a couple things that you told people that if you have somebody in your world that is depressed, Here's what not to do, right? I think that's actually really practical. <laughs> you made it funny. So people are definitely like, if you want the funny version of it, go listen to the show. It's going to be in the show notes. Uh, give us the practical version here of what not to do if there's somebody in your world that is depressed. Yeah, because I mean, it is hard. Like you want to help someone. So, so often what we do is we give them advice. And we, you know, we, we're, we're in a health conscious world. So a lot of us, you know, we read up on the latest research of depression. We know that if people go for a run, it's as effective as antidepressants. So we go, go for a run, just, you know, and we give people that advice and just assume them like, yeah, they're going to act on it. When you're, when you're in depression, it, it's like being stuck in a thick, syrupy kind of wax that you can't escape. You can't move. You've got no emotional momentum. And so when people you love try to give you advice and you don't follow through on it, it deepens your shame. And it makes you want to spend less time with people because then you feel like you're letting them down, that you're, you're a failure, you're a burden. And so weirdly, even though we want to help people, often it's not through you know, advice and suggestions. It's just by showing up and being present, being completely accepting, not needing them to be happy or be better um, in terms of emotionally supporting the people we love who have depression. That's a much more effective approach. Uh, than trying to fix them. So I want to switch to, from depression. I want to get into a few of the topic, topics and we'll come back to some other people that you interviewed on the show. One of the things that I really wanted to cover in this episode is seeing you on stage yesterday and through your work, there's really two things, two themes that you are really nailing that I think our audience could really benefit from. 
And one of those is the topic of confidence. And here's the segue and the link from depression. One of the things that's there that you talked about last night is that when when you are in a depressive state, there's no uh, there's no will to want to do something. And when you finally started making progress and started feeling that you had made progress in these depressive episodes that you had, even though you were very transparent about them coming back later on, there's the confidence and resolve to know that you can handle these situations, right? And part of that has been humor for you. Humor has been one of the things to realize like, look, I'm not just going to suffer in silence. Like I can be honest and I can use humor as a vehicle and tactic to talk about this openly. When did that first come up in your world that you made that link that humor could actually be healing and help you address this thing that you were going through? Yeah. I mean, I, I live by that. And I think it was, it was, I mean, I'd say probably I mean, I had my first depressive episode when I was 16. And when I moved through that, a huge amount of insight developed through that experience because it was very emotional, psychological. And so getting out of that depression took, you know, an enormous amount of sort of looking at myself and unpacking my belief systems and realizing that I was so identified with my story and taking it so seriously all the time. Like there was nothing funny about my life. If something was going wrong, it was very serious. And something was going right, it was very serious. And um, watching it all crumble and then finding, my, finding myself standing outside of it, looking at it and having the choice to judge it as a disaster, uh, as a nightmare, or, you know, as, as, as the internet says, a plot twist. And, and the reframe of looking at life from the perspective of like, isn't this a grand journey with some great plot twists and some really funny kickers from the universe? Is a, is a very different uh, mental state from taking it very seriously. And so like what I literally say to myself, like my biggest personal growth, like mindset tool, is if I'm in something that I'm really struggling with, I keep asking myself, is it funny yet? And if I'm like, no, it's not funny yet. Very angry. Okay, cool. An hour later. How about now? Like, is it funny now? And I will ask myself that if I'm in sadness, if I'm in d- depression, is it funny yet? And the moment, the moment it's like a little bit funny, I know that I'm getting the distance and taking the step back to see it and stepping into a healthier m- mindset where I can look at whatever's happening, get that it's an impermanent state. Like this is something that's happening right now. Get that in like two years time, it might be a fantastic comedy sketch. And, uh, and, and so I think that was, it was a survival mechanism coming out of that, that kind of introspection. So context is always beautiful. I'd love to go back to your story. You know, inside your bio, we talked about getting out of uh, being a ref- recovering high school teacher and lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, take us back to that time in your life, right? Take yeah. Take us back to the time in your life where we, everybody can relate to doing something that they thought they wanted to do and waking up and feeling like this is not what I'm meant to do. So take us to your journey and your story. Lately, um, I grew up in a world where, you know, we didn't have, we didn't have the options of like, you were going to be an online entrepreneur or you were going to start a blog. Like you did well in school and then you picked one of the major degrees and then you did it and that was life. And I, I left, I went to university when I was 16. So I went very young and I went into a liberal arts program because like, and after a year I was like, well, this is very easy and I don't know what I'm doing. So I was like, well, I should probably add a law degree because it's like science is too mathematical. It's just kind of end up doing it. And then it's like six years later, now I'm, a, now I'm a lawyer. And it's like six years of my entire life. And suddenly I'm in this 
profession, which is a terrible match for my uh, my temperament. It, it's built around uh, conflict. It's, it's very adversarial. It, it, in New Zealand, there's a big drinking culture with lawyers. And, you know, very quickly looked ahead and was like, everyone in this profession is on antidepressants or divorced or an alcoholic. And, and you know, I was working so hard in a, in a super dysfunctional model that I burned out. So then I pendulum swung. I was like, all right, well, maybe it's teaching. Retrained, became a high school teacher. That was much harder work. And I worked with kids with behavioral and learning difficulties in a very poor school. And I loved it. Like I loved the job, but I started working like 18 hours a day because I'm creating my own curriculum. I'm creating all my own resources. I started running my, my classroom with these kids, you know, who were the really difficult kids in a way that I wanted them to, I wanted them to do meditation. I wanted them to have the chance to figure out who they were. And to do that, that's like a job that literally, uh, you know, ran me into the ground again. So Teachers work so hard. So hard. And, and, and remember, there's like, it's not like when you're an adult and you give a presentation to another group of adults and everyone goes, lovely job. You will deliver the most kick-ass hour-long lesson to these kids and blow their minds. And the bell ring, they're like, meh, out. <laughs> there's no, there's no, um, you have to be a saint. Like you need, you don't, you, there's no validation. So it's a constant patient outflow of energy, which I hadn't mastered at that point. But with both of us, what I found with law, with law and with teaching, having burned myself out multiple times, certainly with those, was that, again, my mindset, the emotional stress I was creating in both of those careers is what burned me out. And it had very real physical effects. Like I ended up being bedridden as a teacher. I had to resign because I literally couldn't get out of bed anymore. Uh, but that was really, it was, a, it was a broken mental loop that was creating enormous amounts of stress, which was coming out of my body. And what do you think were the themes that were driving that, right? Fear of failure. I have to get this right. I can't mess this up. I have to succeed at this. And having your, my notions of success and, and be m totally out of match with what reality is. So my notion of success being that my, my, my kids in my class are going to get better within three days. They're going to become rock stars. And if they have it within three days, I'm failing. So I think there was a, there was a, a type of a fixed mentality I had growing up about academic performance and we're looking for these very clear external markers of success and constant validation and without that I went into like a stress failure spiral I think that's definitely what what caused it you know so much of the work in personal development and a lot of the the work that you put out there through this uh, new show that you have the consciousness show is really getting to the root of things right um I'm going to have you put on your personal development hat for a second. And so this theme of perfectionism, if a lot of things come from our roots, if somebody else can identify as being a perfectionist, this failure of failure, the, um, like not wanting to fail, having this you know, belief system, digging a little bit deeper, how, do those, how does that come together? What are the root causes that sort of set us up for that is it how we're brought up is it beliefs from our family society what do you think it was in your case i mean speaking i mean obviously just from my perspective and my experience um i i think perfectionism and anxiety tend to go with high performers i think when you're younger if what if the feedback you get from people is you're so clever you're so good at this you go oh okay and you develop this identity around being good at something around just getting it right in the first try I had an identity around not just doing well, but like smashing out the ballpark. My normal was astounding. So if I was anything less than astounding, I was a failure. And so what happens is then you end up, but I couldn't really understand why I was astounding. That's the other part. Like people are telling me you're good, but it was just something you're doing naturally. 
So that Carol Dweck, she she, uh, she writes about the concept of like a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. When you encourage children uh, around, you know, their external achievements, like you're so smart, you did so good at that, they end up with a fixed mindset where they think, well, I'm just good at some things. If they try something and they suck at it, they're like, well, I guess I'm not good at that. And they stop trying things. They will only try things that they know they'll succeed at. Whereas if you reward a child, you know, in the growth mindset kind of sort of theory, you'd say to them, I love how you tried at that. I love how you kept persisting. Do you see how that effort you put in, how great it was at the end when you kept going with it? You reward their process. So it's just like process versus outcome, right? And I think a lot of us are rewarded on our outcomes. We become outcome dependent. And so then we're constantly looking like, am I achieving? Is this perfect? And if it's not, we feel like our survival is threatened because we were brought up to think like, this is what makes me lovable. This is what makes me good enough. This is what makes me, keep me safe in my family. So it's a weird, like it seems like such a crazy thing when you're an adult. But I think certainly for me, it linked into this deep sense of if I, if I didn't behave this way, you know, I would be disappointing, upsetting all the people around me. Mm. Identity, I think, is the key word that you mentioned there. We develop this identity that we have. And if we're not meeting that identity, now all of a sudden we just don't know who we are. Totally. And we don't know what to attempt. At what point in story, what, what point in time in your story? And, you know, it's never always uphill, straightforward, A to B. There's always zigs and zags. But for our audience, in any way that you feel like sharing, at what point in time did you see that things started to shift and what helped you shift from changing that mindset of yours? So you take us back to your story. You were bedridden. Yeah. Right? And you were, you were, yeah, take it us was, from there. And it was tough. You know, I think, and I think what I realized when I, when I, when I was in that moment where I, I resigned and was heartbroken because I, I really loved teaching. Like I loved my job and felt I had my hand forced. And it was a, it was a big moment of having my expectation sort of schism from my reality. And for me, it was kind of like a defining moment. And I was so, I was, in, I was so upset about it. I said, why does this keep happening? Like, why do I keep like putting so much effort into something that I, I care about? And then burning out then like just like imploding and not being able to go the distance and I realized you know looking back at my behavior I was like I felt the whole school year I felt like I was failing and yet when I left my kids told me they were so sad I was going and then all the stories came out about how much they loved me as a teacher Mm. and so I realized like oh there's something here about uh, my fear of failure there's something here about needing validation and so I asked myself you know what is the best way viscerally, like how could I train myself to have a more robust way of navigating failure, to not to not be afraid of attempting and failing to become more immune to that. And that's when I started doing stand-up comedy because I think stand-up comedy touches into some of our deepest fears. You're public speaking, you're up in front of people, friends and strangers, and you're saying to them, I'm going to make you laugh, which is huge social pressure. And 90% of the time, you don't. Yeah, the goal of stand-up comedy is to fail, right? Like it's in the beginning. Absolutely. But, and, but if you go on with any other mindset, then like, I'm so interested in loving failure, you will die. Like it is, it, is a, it is a painful social experience in the context of how we are raised. And so that, that for me became my training ground for, for rewiring my brain from that fixed mindset where I would only do things I knew I was good at that I would win at. And if I didn't, sort of succeed, I'd have a whole mental spiral. And mm-hmm. rewiring from that to this idea that could I be 
really identified with the process. Could my success be in the in the process of what I'm doing rather than the outcome? So a success for me when I do stand up, I say to myself, did I write something that I find interesting and funny? Did I get up and perform it? Success! That is my success criteria. How the audience responded, how well I pulled it off is irrelevant. And that means that every time I step on stage, I'm 100% confident with what I'm going to do because I'm not doing it for a specific reaction. I'm doing it because I'm invested in the creative process and invested in like the personal growth process of, of what that is yielding for me and my brain and my happiness. We've had this past podcast guest, Dr. Joan Rosenberg, and she says, courage is going through something and knowing that however it ends up on the other side of it, you're going to be okay, right? That's really good. There's something really beautiful about that. And it's like confidence comes from knowing that you're going to be okay on the other end of it. However it goes, you're going to be okay. Absolutely. Especially with something performative like stage work, um, TV work, anything where people can, you know, how am I doing? Do people like it? Like there's a, there's an intense social pressure. You're getting immediate feedback from other people. It can be so easy then to, you know, sort of tether your confidence to the external reactions you're getting. And it's so dangerous because the confidence truly is that the confidence is in, is in holding your own emotional state internally. So much of school is designed to have us first be generalist. We're good at everything. And then secondly, not really encourage failure, right? Which doesn't encourage- Punish failure. Punish failure. It doesn't encourage uh, exploration of topics. So for the person that's listening right now and is like, there's things that I want to try, but I'm so afraid of it. What's the practical feedback that you have for them of how to start? Start small. So, so when I, I got after this, I got really into hacking my own psychology. I found that there were a whole bunch of beliefs that were holding me back. Like I was super, super, super polite. And I spent all my time managing everyone's happiness around me, including strangers. Like I'd be like, that stranger looks like they want to park there. I'll make sure I'll just, I'll just drive really slowly so that I don't threaten what they think might be their car park. I don't want to upset them. Crazy stuff. And so I started small. So for instance, I realized I had, I didn't have much entitlement. I, I was always trying to minimize my existence. So I created little social experiments for myself. Like I would park over two parking spaces and take up two parking spaces and then get out of my car and walk away and have a coffee, which is like the most painful thing a person I could do for myself. <laughs> or like be at a, red, a, a light, have the light go green and then wait for it to go red again, despite there being cars behind me. And this sounds like crazy stuff, but there were little micro actions I was taking to train my brain to realize that I can do something that is a little bit outside of what I expect and nothing terrible is going to happen to me. I'm not going to die. It doesn't mean I don't, I don't do it all the time, but it's a way of, of like showing my brain, listen, look, you did this thing that you never normally do, that you think if you did it, like the police are going to swoop in and arrest you for staying at the traffic light for two minutes too long. And nothing, nothing bad is going to happen. Like there's, there is scope for being a little more relaxed. There's a scope for trying things out. There's a scope for taking up a little bit of space. It's okay. And creating a little bit of breathing room. A little bit of breathing room and not having to be uh, so hypervigilant about, you know, am I doing it right? Is, is everyone okay with how I'm doing it? Which is, you know, the social anxiety we can create for ourselves. And it creates so much reactionism that we don't, we lose our own voice because we're simply reacting. I had a mentor of mine, Serrano Kelly, who would say, uh, as part of that process, he would train people in sales and other areas and public speaking. He'd say, just take a little bit of space for yourself. So here's one technique, which is 
Somebody asks you to do something, a favor, right? Just wait for a second. You can look at them and you can say, let me think about that. Yes. Instead of giving them an answer exactly. right now. Exactly. Or like with even just stuff like being late or um, being afraid of submitting something late. Like figuring out like whatever your your edge is where you notice that your anxiety peaks. I don't want to mess this up. I'm going to do it like this. And letting yourself just have this have the experience of making that micro mistake, like doing the micro mistake, breathing through it, and then seeing on the other side, it's really not a big deal. If you're like a hyper perfectionist like I was, I couldn't get anything wrong. If I was late for a meeting by a minute, I would punish myself all day for it. So for instance, what I would do is I'd make myself be three minutes late, walk in and say, thank you so much for waiting. You know, I just was just running down the hall and sit down and continue. And you know what happened? Nothing. Nothing. They're like, no worries. And then all that social anxiety, all that pressure I put myself every single time at a meeting disappears. So it's even though it seems trivial, it is like taking that little bit of space in whatever your your kind of your anxiety points are, teaching your nervous system that listen, if you make a mistake, you know, and I believe in being honest and accountable. So if you make a mistake, you be honest and accountable for it. But then the world keeps going. Like it's okay. There is space for that mistake to happen and for nothing bad to happen to you in the sense of like nothing in your survival is going to be jeopardized. It's, it's like a really important lesson to learn. It's such a small thing, and yet it runs every aspect of our life. Yeah. For those that are listening today, I'm sure you can think about something even just today where your gut got a little tight and you didn't want to say something, you didn't want to do something, or you felt that you had to do something or say something or take care of somebody in a way that didn't feel right. And it all just goes back to the larger theme. You know, One of my favorite books is by this author, Bronnie Ware who wrote a book called The Five Regrets of the Dying. And she's a palliative, palliative care nurse from Australia who sat with hundreds of patients who were uh, at the end of their life, you know, days, hours, weeks, months away from passing and transitioning on. And when people are so close to the moment of transition, you know, all the honesty comes out. And she started realizing that people wanted to open up about what they regretted. They wanted somebody to hear, somebody they could be honest with about what they regretted and how they would do things differently. And the top regret that showed up consistently as she was tracking was, I wish I had the courage to live the life that I was meant to live, yes. not the life that others wanted me to. Exactly. Because at that point, like you've got nothing left to lose and you realize like, like it's allowing themselves to be happy. I, I read that too. It was a very, um, very moving because we don't often think about our mortality. We don't think about our lives in the context of it being a finite moment. It feels so long. It feels so real. You're like, I got years. Uh, but how you spend those years are so important. And, and those micro things like, are you spending significant portions of your emotional and intellectual energy in impression management in pleasing people and compromising yourself? Because that is that been, ends up in a lifetime of being suppressed, which I think you know. I, I for me that was definitely the track I was on. I lived a very suppressed first sort of twenty years of my life, and and was unhappy, had anxiety, and got depressed because of that. You know, you were very honest in the show last night about how depression and navigating that in mental health is something that you continue to work on. And you told a funny story about just even I think it was a couple of years ago. Um, about, uh, you'll, you'll have to go watch the episode to, to see it. I don't want to spoil the, the punchline in it. But just the bottom line is that even just as of recently, you know, looking at this layer of finding your voice, 
as we get older, we find another layer. One, one is maybe impression management was the first one that you noticed and pleasing other people and constantly being reactionary. Was there any link for the recent sort of uh, moment in time on last night's show where you were opening up and saying that you had dealt with depression recently? Has it, what's been the most recent layer for you of finding something in your life that you might have been doing that was linked to um, uh, either feeling depressed or feeling like I don't have kind of control of my life in some sort of way? Yeah, I mean, listen, doing this show has been a spiritual practice. It's a very like out in the world thing. And, you know, but the journey of it, like how I've done the show is, has been as important to me as what I've been doing with the show. I was very clear when I started, if I cannot do the show and, and really love the journey of it moment to moment, there's no point. Cause like you go on, you make another season, you do a bigger show, but it's the same thing. And it brought up a lot for me around uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the the questioning of my of my ego because your ego jumps in and your ego is the one that does things like, who are you to be running this show? Like, oh, you think you're a comedian? Who, no one's going to find this funny. And getting in my own way. And, you know, I, I nearly stopped the show. Like, like two episodes in, I was like, I'm just going to stop. Like, this is not going to work. I fully, fully took myself down and into a, I'd say like a three-day pretty good depressive spiral because I, I hyper-personalized it. I made it all about me. I was like, this show is all about me. And then the Christians come like, well, then do you deserve it? Are you worth it? Like, then you go into this crazy critical mean voice. What if it doesn't work out? What if it doesn't work mean? out? Absolutely. You get into this kind of, into the identification and into the, the like Marissa Peer, you know, the therapist last night, she was talking about how, you know, that mean critical voice, that is in that space of ego. So the, the biggest layer I learned was Thank goodness. I have, I have great coaches. I have a lot of help in my life. I'm really good about being like, I suck at this. It's not working. Who can help me? And I got some great advice where, you know, my, my friend said to me, you need to just really believe and focus on the fact that this is not about you and get out of your own way. Like if you cannot really create something for the sheer joy of it and to share it with others, if you can personalize it, it's going to be a, a hellish trip even if it's successful. And so that, that latest layer for me was the moment I really committed to, it's not about me. I commit to that. I'm not gonna make this about me. I'm creating something and I'm sharing it and it's for the joy and the fun and the love and the connection of it. And that completely changed my experience for the rest of the shows because it was generally from a place of like fun. And that was a layer I hadn't peeled off yet because it, you know that's something you're confronted with when you start to create something of your own and put it out into the world. Uh, and I think for me, that was a, that, that was an old voice I've had for so long that participated in my depressive spirals and my anxiety. And it was absolutely liberating to be like, no more hashtag. It's not about me every single day. <laughs> I want to switch to laughter and I want to switch to comedy and how healing they can be for us. The first thing is this, is that you talk about and it comes through your work about why, like laughter over just lecturing. Yes. What, what do you mean by that statement? Laughter over lecturing uh, because it were two levels. I mean, it's more fun, but also like there's a, there's a whole science of studying laughter. It's called gelatology. 
and they, they look into like how does laughter affect us physically and you know how does it affect our capacity to learn and like literally they find that uh, lecturers who incorporate some humor their students retention rates and performance rates are higher than than lecturers who just deliver straight because when you laugh you release dopamine like it's literally like training your brain to be like enjoy to pay attention it anchors whatever you're learning because it, you create like an emotional spike and reward in the brain so I, I believe at a very basic like at a actual brain level laughing is more effective um, than simply delivering straight information there's a mutual friend of ours reverend michael beckwith and he has this uh, great quote that i've seen him say at agape a few times and i'm paraphrasing here because it's more like a paragraph he always says like you know people who take themselves seriously believe everything they think and when you believe everything that you think you are a really small ball right you're a very small totally tight little thing i can remember being a kid and thinking like (laughs) oh wow i love learning from this person because they don't take themselves seriously they're willing to laugh themselves they know that it's a little bit bigger than that's just this subject that's there so even just on a personal level i think most people who are listening can understand that they we just naturally like to learn from people who can see the humor in situations yes i think that's true what have you seen as you've been doing your show of uh, the power of comedy to also get through very serious topics and deep insights. Yeah, I, I believe just what I've seen with comedy. Like, if you go to a comedy club in New York, it's a very interesting experience because you get this group of strangers who don't know each other from different parts of America or the world. You put them in this like dingy basement, and then you put people up on stage, crappy stage. Like, it's not very, it's not a very nice area, and they just talk at them. But the laughter, by the end of the night, you see these strangers who are just here, they're all bonded together. There's something about when you laugh together, there's, there's a connective element because laughing is such a primarily social communicator. When I laugh, I'm saying, I'm safe, I'm happy, the people around me, I trust them. Uh, you know, you watch apes when they fight. The difference between like play fighting and real fighting is they make a type of um, facial thing, which is, which is laughter. So it's the same physical body movement, but the laughter is the indication of play, we're safe. You're my tribe. So when we laugh together, we're having the same kind of thing happen with us, which means that people open up. Like the, their capacity to receive ideas is radically different when people are in like a laughing connected state. And there's science behind it. I mean, yes. Stephen Porges in the polyvagal theory, he talks about that laughter is actually soothing to our vagal nerve. Because it, it, it spikes the stress system and then releases it. So you have you have like a tension burst and release, which is which is very cathartic and it relaxes you. And then at a brain level, like and this is I think especially important for this time, we have we have such a, sort of a divided identities across the world, and we're becoming very entrenched in our in our concepts of self. I am this person. I believe these things. And the way that we're dealing and with this, anybody who doesn't is wrong. And anyone who doesn't is wrong and bad. And, and the trouble is that we're trying to talk to each other about these things across these divides using facts. We're being rational. We're like, well, I understand that you believe um, that this is real, this isn't, but here's like hard scientific evidence that you're wrong. But we know that this causes the backfire effect, right? That, you know, there was, I think it was the, the University of Southern California. They put people in an MRI scanner and you know, they asked them before about their beliefs about things. They put them in an MR, MRI scanner and then they would present them with uh, contradictory f- evidence about their core beliefs. Hard facts. And it, watch what happened to the brain. 
And the brain went into straight into the amygdala. It literally treated an intellectual threat the same way it treats a physical threat. So even though you're giving someone like rational, factual information, you are throwing them into fight or flight as if they're being attacked, mm. which is why you know, we try to reason with each other with facts and we just end up hating each other more and believing our own views more. It doesn't work. But laughter is a bridge because laughter does the opposite. It takes us out of fight and flight. It puts us into connective mode. We can hear ideas that are, you know, that, that go against our core beliefs much easier when we're laughing. We can laugh about like, yeah, actually I am like that in a relationship or, or the situation oh, I, is like that. Yeah, yeah, my culture is a bit like that. We can laugh at the hard truths because we're in a different brain state. And I think that's very, very important. It's so true and you see it that Hollywood is one of the most universal is Hollywood is one of the best ways to spread ideas that initially come across as controversial. Right? Just think about like gay marriage, right? Yeah. And public opinion of gay marriage and how people felt like this is wrong, this is this, this is that. Uh, even up until like the early like, you know, 2000s when like Clinton was in office and you start seeing more uh, gay characters that identify as gay on TV through humor in movies and other things like that. And all of a sudden, a very short period of time, public opinion is shifting. Not that that was the only thing. There was a lot of back and work, uh, the LGBT community that was doing out there. But they even credit Hollywood as being a big part of that aspect of not just being able to see ourselves in that person, but also being able to laugh and have a shared experience with that character. It's, it's so funny because I something that has really been coming up for me over and over again, you know, we talk about like, why is it important to have real representation in mainstream media? Like, why is it important? And often it's said, well, you know, people want to be able to see themselves. It's, it's important to have, you know, people who look like and sound like different groups of society reflected. But I was realizing like, it's, it's even more important to have those people, like different types of people with different voices up there so that the mainstream group of Americans can actually develop a relationship that is connected with them because a lot of people don't have personal relationships with people that are different from them we live in these isolated communities we, we largely group according to our own values our own socioeconomic groups we don't have a lot of opportunity or don't make opportunity to meet with and connect with people outside of that mainstream media provides a opportunity for that if they do it right because it, you're right you see a character and you laugh along with them and you connect with them and then suddenly your brain goes huh like they go from being like this two-dimensional stereotype of a person to like, oh, I, I could like someone like that. Like that's a person like me. I have this, you know, a positive association. And like we need to do that. I think we have to kind of retrain our brains out of the fearful negative stereotypes we have about people who are other than us, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's a real issue in America. They even called it like the Will and Grace moment. Like when <laughs> Will and Grace is on TV. Right. That that was that was thought of as like a key thing that was out there. Having people laugh, a mainstream, you know, like primetime uh, funny show. Uh, that was like a very defining moment for individuals to see these two gay characters that were there and laugh with them. And like you said, take them out of this bucket of beliefs and this jail of beliefs into, wow, these people are so much more than I would have thought. And we, we know with TV, we think that, our TV show characters are our friends. That's how we feel about them. We, we literally identify with TV show characters like, oh, they're my friends. So it's powerful because then people essentially are bringing out people who are other than them into their immediate sense of closeness. And I, I think that's a really 
it's it, there's so much potential in that bridge if if you know we could get that right yeah and that's why you say like laughter is really truly a tool for self-awareness it's incredible so i want to touch on the show i want to come back to the show a little bit because you've talked to some really incredible people i just want to highlight and kind of hit on a few of them and if you give us a little snippet of uh why you uh went to them so we last night's show was marissa pier uh and we talked about the depression aspect of that recently before that you interviewed uh one of your friends and colleagues uh vision about creating an extraordinary life give us a little bit of a, of a preview about that conversation and what listeners can learn from that yeah, so Vishen Lakhiani, uh, he's the founder of Mind Valley, which is a big transformational education company. And I've worked with him for the last of five years, hosted his events, and, and used to be the director of content at his company. And his all his work really focuses around kind of what we talked about earlier. You know, we get we, we tend to get swept up in life, do something we don't even know that we want to do it, and then wake up one day and be like, ah, oh, what is happening in my world? And unhappy with what we've created. His work is all about how do you intentionally and consciously create a meaningful life? You know, becoming extraordinary, not necessarily just in the sense of like, oh, I'm doing extraordinary things, but more in the sense of can you bring an extraordinary quality of intentionality to whatever it is you choose to do? And, uh, and I think that's super important you know, to help us break outside of the, the boundaries of expectations and pressure we grow up with and be able to choose, if, if not our daily tangible life, because we can't all just radically choose that but to be aware of how we choose to show up in it, how to respond to it, you know, how to make what life we have incredibly meaningful for us. Let's go to the next person that was on your uh, list a few weeks ago. You interviewed Dr. Andrea Pennington. Yes. Who is she and why did you ask her to be on your show? So I, I, her work centers around self-love and, she, and she's an integrative medicine physician. So she comes from a medicine background and she was a hyper-perfectionist. So she had you know, her own experiences with depression and these perfectionist spirals which took her into really learning about and teaching self-love. And uh, so having her on the show, we really touched into something that is so basic, but so fundamental, which is how do you understand like the language you use with yourself? How do you change that language so that it is supportive and loving and kind? How do you practice self-compassion? Uh, I think this plays a huge part in anxiety and depression, the language we use with ourselves. And, and, you know, taking self-love, which is, you know, it can seem like this like woo-woo, so like fluffy concept and really just grounding it in the fact that like self-love is one of the most sort of radical personal practices you could use to become a happy person. I, you know, it really is. We talk to ourselves in a way that we would never talk to a friend. Ever. Like crazy people in our head. Eckhart Tolle always says like the only difference between, you know, someone who's on the streets ranting and raving to themselves out loud and us is that we do it inside. It's like inside our heads. And it's yeah. kind of a little true. And so like being aware of maybe some of the crazy narrative and shifting that for the better. You did an entire show on the topic of lucid dreaming. Who'd you interview and what is lucid dreaming and why is it important? You know, so you know how meditation used to be weird? Like maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, meditation was like weird. Are you in a cult? Yeah, meditating. So lucid dreaming is a incredible spiritual technology which is sitting right at the periphery of i'd say mainstream spiritual kind of awareness that is about to break through and so lucid dreaming is the practice that any human being can do you can train yourself to do this where you learn to wake up in your dream so you're fast asleep your body is fast asleep you're in REM, but you're in the dream state and you start to look around and recognize like i think i'm in a dream 
and you're able to actually it's a completely unique brain state because lucid dreaming you have your full-on like subconscious dreaming mind is active and they've done the mri scanner thing too where they got a guy to get lucid in the scanner and when he started to realize he was dreaming and he started to wake up in his dream um, another part of his brain lit up which is the part that has all of our sense of identity you know our memory recall you can wake up in the dream and be like oh i'm mia lux i'm in sleep in my bed in new york and this is my dream state the why it's so profound is because when you are in your dream state and you're able to stay in that dream state, you have direct access to your unconscious mind. You can ask to meet, you know, uh, sort of personifications of different parts of your psyche. You can do healing work, spiritual work. You can ask questions to the dreamer. It's essentially the most intensely real uh, virtual reality, all built from your own mind. I mean, there's famous scientists who say that they've used lucid dreaming yes. to solve problems, to come up with academic ideas, to come up with inventions that are out there. And a lot of athletes, very successful athletes, use lucid dreaming to train because when you're lucid in your dream, it's the same as being awake. Whatever you do in your lucid dreaming state registers into your brain and records into your brain as if it's a real act. Uh, and so, and what's really interesting is they can do uh, any kind of rehearsal of a, you know, like a musical item or you know, sort of an athletic act and the body literally takes that like it's training and improves the day-to-day, you know, literally takes that and improves the day-to-day action of it. So it's, it's a really, it's, from a, that kind of perspective, it's a great tool, but the spiritual tool in it, I think, in terms of getting to know yourself, it, it's, it's one of the most mind-blowing experiences. And, you know, everyone's like off like trying to do ayahuasca and sweat lodges and we're all these like, everyone's on like a spiritual journey, but this is something which requires just... It's just you. It's just you in your dream time. It's, it's a very, very powerful practice. You know, the Tibetan Buddhists have been using it for 2,000 years. The Toltecs use it. It's a cornerstone of, of Tibetan Buddhism because they use it to practice for death. So getting conscious in your dream is a way of, of waking up in the dream, in the, in the death state and, and reaching enlightenment. So, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It's kind of coming into, into knowledge. And Charlie Morley, who is, who's the teacher I brought over, he, he's been my teacher through it. He trained in the Tibetan Buddhist kind of tradition. So he teaches lucid dreaming within a spiritual context, which I think is is pretty important. Because you could go into lucid dreaming and do whatever you want. You could be like, I'm going to have sex with this person or I'm going to set this on fire. Like you could go. But the Tibetans are clear. They think that you can incur karma in a lucid dream because mm. you're doing it with full intentionality. And, you know, and also it's your own, it's your own subconscious. You could, you're doing damage to yourself, right? So I, I, Charlie Morley's... Uh, some spiritual context is, I think, is very important. I had a, it was a crazy story. So I had a high school AP biology teacher and honors biology teacher. He was the only doctor at our school. It was a PhD. And he used to host this thing once a week. Like if the class like all acted well and things like that, he would say, okay, it's be a ask me anything session, right? So this is in like the year like 1998 when I was in high school. And in the Ask Me Anything session, somehow somebody said like, oh, what do dreams mean? And he said, okay, listen, if you really want to learn about this, I'm going to teach you about something called lucid dreaming. It's like 1998, really? my high school teacher, right? So then he goes into this Dude. whole process. He said, okay, stay afterwards and we're going to talk about it. He went into talking about how like very famous people use it and, and why. And he kind of, I mean, he gave me like the shorthand version of it. I can't wait to see Charlie uh, Morley's episode with you. He's like, identify your hand, right? He has the whole process of like looking at your hands, meditate on your hands before you go to bed. 
And then when you're dreaming, like set the intention that you're going to look out for your hand. And I was like, this is so weird. And then finally one time I was like, okay, let me do it. And I didn't, I'm in high school, right? So what are you going to do with lucid dreaming at that time? I woke up in the middle of a dream and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so incredible. I just want to fly, right? So I started flying around my town and I went into like the neighbor's house and I walked up their stairs. I flew all the way to school. I was like exploring classrooms. Flash forward like five years later, I'm in college and I come back home to visit my parents and my neighbor, our neighbor, our parents' house, which was right next door, was having an open house. They never had kids. So we never went into their house. I never saw it. And I went into their house because my dad was like, oh, let's just like look at the neighborhood and see what the house is next across the street. And I walked in this house and I had this experience of, I've been here before. And my dad was like, no, they never really invited us over or anything like that. And I was like, this is actually from a lucid dream. Their house was laid out exactly as I imagined it in the dream state. You know, it's actually possible you had an OBE, not to get super woo-woo here, but lucid dreaming can often be a gateway to OBEs, which is, this is where it gets super woo-woo, but it's an astral projection where you, you are actually able to go. And it's not that woo-woo like because- outer body experience. Because, you know, the Defense Force has been training soldiers in this for forever because they want, it's, it's remote viewing, right? Right, remote viewing. There's yeah. a big book on it, a guy who trains- Yeah, today. it's like pretty wild. And it's and like as the more and more research and science comes out, it's getting more and more like, oh, right. Um, but it's possible you actually had an OBE, which can happen when you when you start learning lucid dreaming, don't realize, and you literally go out, and that means you can, you actually do get to move through the physical world, and you can go and see things that are actually real. That's a I mean, I haven't got into that yet because I'm like that's like a whole nother level. But it sounds like you might have like had a totally accidental OBE. You know what? Go I love, you. <laughs> what I love about you bringing the spotlight back on this is that this used to be something that I would explore. I've not done anything with lucid dreaming recently, and just highlighting these great guests and these topics and talking about it in a humorous way of how we can bring it back to our life and educational way and what the practical tips are. I'm actually excited because a big part of my early entrepreneurial career was visioning, imagining stuff, thinking about it. And then I think sometimes as we get older, we forget to embrace the same tools that took us to where we wanted to be in the first and, place. And you know what's interesting? You know, we all know how visualization is very effective. Like there's like you do visualization, your brain starts to groove it, it starts to manifest. Like there's like that's a whole world again. Um, when, you're, when you lose a dream, it's the most vivid kind of visualization. And you're tapping into the knowledge, like your unconscious mind has been present during every moment of your life. And it remembers things that you could never remember. One of the first times I lucid, had a lucid dream, I looked around and, and like, first of all, it's hyper real. Like it's, everything feels real. Dreams aren't dreamy. Like there's texture, sensation, pain, taste, you know, wind. It's, it's as real as this reality, which is one of the powerful experiences where you realize like, oh, this could also be a virtual reality. Um, but then you, you start to get that like your unconscious mind knows so much more about you than just your conscious mind. So if you want to ask it questions about like your career, you want advice, like I go in and I will dialogue with my unconscious mind and I do get so much input and guidance from this other greater part of myself that almost has like the full database of my life available to it. And so I really do believe it's one of the most, and oh, not even that, PTSD. So Charlie Morley works with, with veterans who have PTSD. Using lucid dreaming to integrate shadow and, and nightmares is enormously powerful. It's, it's a healing tool and a, and a self-knowledge tool that I think once people get that it's available to them for free, like it's literally something they can do and they start using it, I think it could be a powerful way to transform, you know, large swaths of society. 
Well, you don't want to miss that episode. You can check it out in the show notes for the Consciousness Show. Okay, last person, last but not least, Dr. Mark Hyman. Ah, my favorite. Uh, What can we learn from Dr. Mark Hyman? Everything. I learned everything from him. What's interesting because, you know, Mark being my husband, we have we have conversations about about health and food all the time. Like, you know, we were both very into it. I get the kind of the benefit of seeing him as he's learning things minute to minute to minute. So I wasn't sure if he was going to be able to surprise me with anything on the show. And but what it was was like really coming back to this idea that, that kind of blew my mind that what if food isn't really a personal choice? It's such a, it's such a, like, it's just something I've been brought up with that, you know, what you eat is up to you. It affects just you. You know, it's, if it's up to you, if you want to get fat or not fat, but what if it's not? Like, what if there's a type of structural oppression or a type of like structural, you know, violence, which means that we live in a world where we don't actually necessarily have access to food. It's not necessarily our choice. If the only food we have access to is crappy, toxic food, is that a choice? Mm. And that really blew my mind, especially in the context of America where it's not equal. You know, some of us have good food. A lot of people don't have access at all. A lot of people and are hungry. A lot of people are hungry. A lot of people are have are over overeating stuff that gives them no nutritional value. So you have this kind of this 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 notion now I think we're really getting that food is about so much more than like looking good and being on a diet. That there's that there is it's a human right. Like we need it. And the system that creates the food in no way respects that. And and that to me is 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 a huge point that he he really has been sharing and, and surprised me and, and really moved me. Uh, does he talk about what he eats on the episode? <laughs> yeah, I made him do the rundown, of course. Um, <laughs> well, you're his the, wife, so you can fact check. So we should be excited about that. I know, I can't <laughs> wait for one day when someone does the interview with me about what does Dr. Mark Hyman really eat? <laughs> He eats well. It's fine. Yeah, no, he eats really well. He eats really well. And he, I do as a result because he cooks. Lucky me. No, it's uh, super amazing. Uh, Mia, so excited about the show. Last night, it was such a pleasure and honor. And I just want to give you some props uh, real quick. First of all, last night's show is a new digital online show. So it's in startup mode, right? Like any startup, there's limited resources. Uh, I was so blown away. The show was in an hour. You and there's many parts and segments where you were just talking directly to camera. You did the entire thing without a teleprompter. So I don't yes. know if this is the Dr. Hyman diet or something else, but <laughs> it's because I fixed my broken brain. I got my memory brain. back. It's all good. <laughs> uh, you made us laugh. Uh, you made us like reflect. And uh, I can't wait for the listeners of this podcast to actually get a chance to experience it and subscribe to the show and check it out. And just my dream and my hope and the intention that I'm putting out there is that the the show continues and in a, in a bigger capacity where even more people can get a chance to um, check it out. So a couple of important dates. It went live on November 7th. The show has been out there. So this episode already came out. So people can already check it out. And uh, Dr. for those that's also subscribed to Dr. Hyman's podcast, you can check out his episode on there. We're going to be putting out there for the audience. And for everybody else who's on the interwebs, where can they find out more about the show and where can they go to uh, subscribe and learn more? Yeah, absolutely. So the show, uh, you can go to www.consciousish.com. That's where you know, all the episodes, all the content is going to go up. You can watch it there. Or you can find us on Instagram, you know, at the handle Consciousish. Or for me, my Mia Lux. What's your hope for the show? I want to take the most powerful, transformative tools and make them so accessible by making a mainstream TV show. I want to trick people into getting better because they're like oh we're gonna watch this funny show and then the next week 
they start noticing that they're changing their life. They're thinking about it. Like I want mainstream media to become a vehicle for helping people's lives rather than like pushing them down. Incredible. Well, you did that last night and you did that here in our episode of the Broken Brain Podcast. Mia Lux, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search there, find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner, helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.